0: Into First and Second Samuel specifically, first, um, and kind of share uh, what I believe the Lord wants to get across to us uh, in this next series. Let's pray, Lord. We thank you um, so much for the chance to to come here once again and dive into Your Word, Lord. I thank you for um, Your faithfulness and and and. Uh, guiding us through the entire, uh, book of Genesis. It feels good to finish something that, um, that we started, Lord, but really it's about what you started, God, and I pray that you would, uh, just move through this series, God, as we, uh, talk about, uh, what happened so long ago and, uh, the beginning of the reign of the kings and different leaders that you raised up, and, uh, Lord, I know, um, your heart for, for each of us is that we would uh, be people that, that stand up for righteousness and stand up for you and, and be leaders in some capacity. God, so I pray uh, that you would just speak to us individually, that you would um, just hit home, uh, get into our hearts, and, and, and help us understand uh, what we need to know and what we need to grasp and what we need to apply through this text. We love you. In your name. Amen. All right. So, um, tonight we're going to do an intro. Uh... I crammed a lot tonight cuz I couldn't uh decide and so I decided uh we're going to get through the first chapter but we are going to do an intro uh first and second Samuel generally I'll basically give you uh, an outline of the two books not in detail just basically the people that the certain chapters are discussing cuz it's important uh with the series and and what I believe uh the Lord led me in the title of this series but first off when you look at first and second Samuel uh if you look at the Hebrew Old Testament which is called the Tanakh okay it's called the Tanakh uh it's not separated the same way that we have our uh, books separated in the Old Testament we have 39 books they have 22 uh so first Samuel uh first and second Samuel weren't first and second Samuel it was just Samuel okay so it was one book and then um when the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek, uh, that's referred to as the Septuagint, the old uh testament that was translated into Greek, that's referred to as the Septuagint. You'll see little things at the bottom of your Bible sometimes, we'll reference it or commentaries or whatever, then it was divided. Um so it's really one book. So we're gonna go through first and second Samuel technically it's one we have it two doesn't matter it's the same thing that was written in the original uh Hebrew so when we look at this book we can tell just by the title that Samuel had something to do with it right it's first and second Samuel so we're we can uh believe and and guess i would say that Samuel wrote a big portion of this book but he's going to die in first Samuel chapter 25 so he couldn't have written the whole thing Okay, he's he's dead and we still got Second Samuel that's going to go on. And there's a lot of different debate about who continued writing uh, these writings. It could have been um, Nathan. It could have been a lot of different people. We're not sure, but ultimately it doesn't matter that much because the Holy Spirit wrote this book. Uh, the Holy Spirit inspired these scriptures. Same thing goes for any other book that we're not sure about the author, like Hebrews and some others. So the Lord inspired this text, and that's why we're going to study it in depth, and that's why we're going to get so much out of it, because there's things that he wants to speak to us personally. Now, this book was written about 1,100 years um, before Christ, okay? So about 1,100 B.C., this was written, and we're going to see during that time period, uh, the Philistines were, were becoming like a world power, if you will. Not like as powerful as the Egyptians were, but they're becoming stronger and stronger and stronger, and we'll see many battles with the Israelites and the Philistines. They're growing in power, but we also see that Israel is in a state of darkness. They're in such a state of darkness that people aren't even hearing from the Lord, including the leaders early on the early priests in this time frame eli and hophni and phinehas his sons they're not hearing from the lord this is a very dark period in israel's history and then samuel's going to come on the scene and some things are going to change and god is going to speak to him uh often as we'll discuss but if you look at these two books really first and second samuel um in its entirety, uh, there's so many leaders that are focused on and keyed in on throughout these two books. Mainly, we got some main people that these uh, that that the author discusses, and I'll just list them to you by chapter. Okay, you got three main characters. Okay, but there's other characters that we'll discuss in First uh, Samuel. Chapter one to seven, the focus is really on Samuel. OK, focus really on Samuel, a leader. OK, we'll talk about him a lot. Uh, first Samuel, chapter eight to 14, uh, the text focuses on a different leader. That would be King Saul, the first king of Israel. Then the biggest chunk from first Samuel, chapter 15 to second Samuel, chapter 20 focuses on. Can you guess? David, right? Okay, so most of it's about David. And then after that, the last chapters is really focusing on the kingdom that was established uh, by David. But we're going to see that this book isn't just about these three leaders and the kinds of leaders that there were. There were there were so many leaders in here from the beginning. We have Eli, we have Hophni, we have Phineas. Later, we'll be introduced to Jonathan. We're going to see this balance between good godly leaders and corrupt leaders throughout the entire text. And I believe, through my prayer and studying these books, that this is really the the point that God wants to get across to all of us what it means to be a godly leader and the reality the truth that we were all called to lead in some capacity in fact we were born to lead and that's why i titled this series born to lead okay so that's the title of the entire series born to lead Well, see that's not that don't worry about that that's the title of the teaching that lines up too I'll get into that in a second. Okay, so Born to Lead, title of the series. Now, you might say, I wasn't born to lead, I don't look at myself as a leader, I don't view myself in that capacity, God hasn't given me that gift, and we know there is a spiritual gift and the gift of leadership, and there are many people that have that gift in this church, but you don't have to have the spiritual gift of leadership to be a leader. God's called us to be leaders in some capacity, whether that's leading our little brother or our little sister, whether that's leading our wife or our family, whether that's that's being a spiritual leader at work. And maybe you work in a secular environment and God puts you there for a specific reason. Maybe you're the only Christian there and God has placed you there for what? To be a leader, to be a spiritual leader, to be someone that stands up for righteousness for someone, to be someone that stands up for their faith. See, God uses all kinds of people to become leaders. And you might think, well, I'm not really that person that uh, is ever going to go up there and share a message or stand there in front of people and direct them. I never thought that I would do that too, so... So just count your blessings. Maybe God will call you to do that. And you will be speaking in front of people. But we see throughout the text, as I said, God uses all kinds of people. And we see many times God will call servants to become leaders. He'll use the guys that are in the background. The guys that aren't getting all the attention, the guys that are just being faithful with the what the Lord has for them that day, and he uses that guy. And he makes that guy become the leader that he'll use to shape a whole people group. We see it throughout the Bible. One great example that I love is Stephen from Acts, right? In Acts chapter 6, we see that there was so much going on in the church that the other leaders the disciples the apostles those sent out by Jesus they had to to get help so they started Putting into practice, uh, gathering some guys to, to help literally serve tables and do the stuff behind the scenes that they didn't really have time to do at that specific time period. Now, one of those people was, was Stephen and he started out as a deacon. He was very much behind the scenes for about a chapter. <laughs> we don't know exactly how long it was, but we see in chapter seven, in chapter seven, he's speaking boldly to the Sanhedrin. See, God used Stephen as that servant, as that faithful man, he raised him up in a short time to be a bold speaker preaching the gospel for the name of Jesus. And it wasn't that Stephen Uh, had all these gifts. Yes, he had many gifts, but it wasn't about his gifts. It was about his character. God used him in a mighty way because he had these specific character qualities. He was faithful. He was a man that pursued God. He was a man that loved God. And we're going to see throughout this book, if you sum it up, When you look at leadership, there's really one thing that God's looking for. And all those other things connect to that one thing. And God makes it very clear the type of leaders that he's looking for, the type of people that he's looking for. What type of person is that? A man after his own heart. And that's what he says in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 4. If you look at that real quick, this is really one of the theme verses for the entire uh two books first and second Samuel we see that Saul he messed up he messed up a couple times this is one of the times but in first Samuel chapter 13 uh, verse 14 it says but now your kingdom shall not continue this is Saul speaking of Saul the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you it's that simple. God's not seeking a leader that wants to be a leader necessarily. He certainly isn't seeking a leader that's seeking position. He's seeking a leader that's seeking Him. That's really what it comes down to. And as we seek Him, character will develop, he will mold us, he will shape us into the leader's That he's called us to be. And that's not just a man after God's own heart. That's a woman after God's own heart as well. And we have to remember that we're not fooling God. He knows where our hearts are at. He knows what our motivations are. In fact, another theme verse in this text is 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. You can write it down. It says, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart we have a tendency in our culture and not just our culture all around the world will will look at people on the outside and judge them based on what we perceive but we can only perceive so much see god he perceives what's in man's heart a guy can look like he's got it all together he can he can he can walk the walk or appear so, and talk the talk, or so it sounds. But God, he's looking at the heart of the individual. It's not about gifts. It's not about talents. It's not about abilities. It's all about our desire for God. Now, yes, talents, abilities, and gifts, all these things come into play. And God uses those things. But that's not the primary thing. When you look at the... Uh, when you look at the... Uh, Uh, the pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus. When you look at the qualifications for an elder or a leader in the church, what is it talking about? Character. Doesn't say anything about you have to have the gift of this or the gift of that. It says you have to have the ability to teach and you need this character. Where does that character come from? It comes from our pursuit of God. As we pursue God, that character develops and leaders are established see throughout these two books first and second samuel we're going to see good kings we're going to see bad kings we're going to see righteous kings we're going to see corrupt kings we're going to look at all these different types of leaders that ruled and reigned through this period during this period in israel and we're going to purpose to learn from each of them uh side note i strongly suggest it, it, it has anyone ever read a tale of three kings Okay, some. I strongly suggest, okay, loose connection, but it definitely connects. It's a very short book, it's a hundred pages, it's one of my favorite books ever. It's all about leadership and and authority and how God establishes authority. Um, I I strongly encourage you to to get that book and read it. I have it out somewhere in this church right now. I'll try to get a hold of it. Uh, I won't tell you who has it. Uh, but when I get it back, I'll pass it around. But seriously, it's such a great book, and it will help you understand this book uh, kind of in, in its entirety. So, generally speaking, it's only 100 pages, like I said. Anyways, we're going to look at all these different leaders... And we're going to understand both how to lead and how not to lead. What kind of leader is God specifically looking for? And we're going to see, even in this first chapter, examples of godly leaders. We're literally going to see examples of two people, a couple, that are those type of leaders, that are those type of people that are after God's heart, that are seeking God's heart. We're going to look at Elkanah and Hannah specifically. And we're going to see how they sought God diligently. They pursued the Lord. We always think of a man after God's own heart. That's David. And yes, that's what the text is referring to. But he wasn't the only man after God's own heart. And there's also, as we see, there's women that are after God's own heart as well. See, Elkanah and Hannah... They diligently seek the Lord, and through their diligent pursuit of the Lord, God's going to bless specifically Hannah with a son, a son in the name of Samuel. And we're going to see that Samuel is literally dedicated from birth to seek the Lord, which brings me to the title of this teaching, Born to Seek God. That's not just Samuel, that's all of us. We were all born to seek God. We were all created to worship. We were all created with that element of wonder. We were all created with that desire to seek truth and it's only God and God alone that, that, that captures all of that. That captures all of those heart's desires. He's the way, he's the truth, he's the life. When we seek him, we will find him. And all these other things will come, fall into place. In 1 Samuel, chapter 1, verse 1. Now, there was a certain man of Ramothame, Zophim, of the mountains of Ephraim. And his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, and Ephraimite. Okay, so we're introduced to Elkanah. This is Samuel's dad, okay? And we see that he's actually an Ephraimite. But if you look at 1 Chronicles chapter 6, I don't want to read all of this for time's sake, but when you look at his genealogy, we see that he's actually a Levite. Well, why does it say he's an Ephraimite? Well, it says he's an Ephraimite because he's a Levite that, le- that lives in Ephraim. Okay, So he lives in the region that Ephraim, that tribe possessed, but he's technically a Levite, which is important to note and understand because that means Samuel will be a Levite. And we'll get into that probably uh, next week or the week after. But we see Elkanah, Samuel's dad, he was literally born to leave. He was born to be a spiritual leader for the people because he's a Levite by birth. He has this 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 priest calling that God has called him to. So he's both called and born, literally to lead. Let's see what happens. First Samuel chapter one, verse two. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. So we see Elkanah, though he's a Levite and though he's a spiritual leader, he's got two wives, okay? We see polygamy throughout the Bible and the Bible doesn't condone polygamy. God never says, this is a good idea, okay? Anytime we ever see polygamy in the Bible, it's always disastrous. It's always problematic. Just think of the examples that we walk through in Genesis. Sarah and Hagar didn't work out so well, right? She ended up on the streets, well, really in the desert, but whatever, she, right? She ended up away from home. That didn't work out so well. Leah and Rachel, that didn't go so good either for those sisters, yeah? David and all his wives, that's kind of caused a lot of problems. Solomon and all his, even more problems. So we see throughout the text, the Bible never paints a pretty picture of polygamy, Okay it's not a good thing it's not that something that god desires us to pursue and i know we all understand that but we have to understand it biblically even when he speaks of elders in the church spiritual leaders the husband of one wife why because when god created adam and then created Eve from Adam. He said, the two shall become one flesh. He didn't say, add one more and they will be one, two, or whatever the dynamic you can think of. No, no, the two become one. There's no like one and a half or three or whatever you want to do with that equation. The two become one. God always intended it to be one. Now, when we look at the Bible and say, oh, well, it talks about polygamy. The Bible talks about a lot of stuff, but what's the purpose of the Bible? What's God trying to get across? He's trying to proclaim truth. <laughs> this is what actually happened. He's not just trying to paint a pretty picture, right? When you see a, a story on the news about somebody murdering someone else, they're not saying that's a good thing, right? They're just claiming truth. When we see these things that are happening in Egypt with ISIS and all these different places, it's not like the media is like condoning that. They're just saying this is what happened. Same thing goes from the Bible. When we read some of these crazy stories that happened, the Bible's trying to get truth across. God wants us to know what actually happened. So we see what actually happened. Elkanah, he had two wives. Now, one of these wives, Peninnah, she had children, but Hannah had no children. We're going to see that Hannah was barren. Okay, we can look at that and be like, oh, that's sad. But in that culture, it's even sadder. Being barren was a huge burden in that culture. See, a husband, his main role and his, his main purpose was to pass down his lineage. So he wanted to have a son so bad. Every husband wanted to have a son so he can pass down his name. Now, we can relate to that in all our culture, but it was so much more extreme in this culture. Not only that, did the husband want to pass down his name? We remember we talked about this in Genesis. There was a command that God gave from the beginning. He said, what? Be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. A barren woman, she can't do this. She, she can't be fruitful and multiply. So because she's barren, she's in disobedience. And sometimes there was consequences for these things. The point is that if you couldn't get pregnant, this was a serious problem. It was a much bigger deal then than it is now. There weren't like other options. Okay, there was no other options. If God closed the womb, then the womb was closed until unless God opened it. First Samuel chapter one, verse three, this man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. So we see that Elkanah, he would go up to Shiloh to worship. So for almost 400 years, Shiloh was the place of worship. That's where the tabernacle was held. Uh, and in the tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant. That's where people came to perform sacrifices and offerings and all these different things. It's like how, how, what Jerusalem became. Okay, Shiloh, that's, that's what this city stood for. It was the place people came to worship God. Until, until God had to teach Shiloh a lesson. It doesn't happen in this text. It will happen later on, but it's very interesting. If you look at this prophecy through Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 7, Jeremiah chapter 7, God, he speaks judgment upon Shiloh in Jeremiah chapter seven, verses 12 to 14. Uh, I'll read it. But go now to my place, which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first. That's what he's talking about and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people, Israel. And now, because you have done all these works, says the Lord, and I spoke to you rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear and I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house which is called by my name and which you trust and to this place, which I gave to you and your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh. See, God spoke judgment on Shiloh. And in fact, today, when you look at Shiloh, it's bare and in ruins, God spoke judgment on Shiloh and it actually happened. Okay, There's, there's really nothing there. There's like a, a distant, small Israeli neighborhood close to it. But God spoke destruction to the place and it actually happened. We see this throughout scripture when God speaks judgment on a place. It does happen in history. And if it hasn't happened yet, we can be confident that it will back to Elkanah, so he would come up yearly to sacrifice to the Lord in the place of Shiloh. He would come up every year. Now, we know that all men were called to come up three times a year to celebrate specific feasts, and a lot of those feasts overlap. We won't get into that tonight. But anyways, Elkanah, what we see with him is that there was consistency in his worship. There was consistency in his pursuit of God. Point number one of four, seek God consistently. Seek God consistently. Elkanah was a faithful man. He was a consistent man. We see him, we'll look at him throughout this chapter. He's constantly seeking the Lord. We see this consistency that this character quality specifically in leaders, but just across the board, anyone following God is so important to the Lord. When we look at Jesus, right, Jesus was the way and we see him doing certain things so consistently, right? It says he would wake up long before the sun came up and he'd go to get alone with the father and he would do this often. This was his custom. This was his practice. We also see that he would regularly, consistently go to the synagogues on the Sabbath and speak in the synagogues on the sabbath he was a man that was very consistent in his pursuit of the lord through prayer through worship through seeking god in his word even though he was the word and even going to, to to the church of that day if you will see god desires that we would be consistent seekers of him are you consistent with your walk do you seek god consistently Or do you have seasons where you're like on fire and seasons where you're like ice cold? Do you have do you have weeks maybe that you're like, man, I've been seeking God like all day, every day. I'm waking up. I'm getting in the word. I'm doing all these things. My my relationship with God is on point. And then something happens, maybe it's a trial, maybe it's a tribulation, maybe you're just questioning God, or whatever. Maybe it's even a blessing, and that seems to be the tendency. More time we're distracted from blessings than we are from trials. Whatever the case is, is there periods of times in your walk where you lack consistency, where you step on the brakes a little bit, where you're no longer stepping on the gas, where that pursuit isn't as diligent, see, God desires that we would seek Him consistently. That's what we see in Elkanah. He's a consistent seeker of God. Not that we're on one week and we're off another week, but there would be a consistency in our walk. It's so important to the Lord, not just with all of us, but again, specifically with leaders. If you remember back two weeks ago with Reuben, what was the thing that Jacob said in regards to Reuben and his leadership? It says, you're unstable in all your ways. You're unstable. You're inconsistent. You're unreliable. I don't know which Reuben I'm getting. Same thing goes for us. God desires that we would be consistent, that we would be stable. And the truth is, if we seek God consistently, stability will be established in our lives. We don't want to be people that are tossed to and fro with every single thing that comes our way. We want to be people that not only other people can rely on, but that God could rely on. God, he could rely on Elkanah. He was a faithful, consistent man. Back to 1 Samuel. Verse 3. Also the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. Okay, So we'll get to know Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. Specifically, Hophni and Phinehas. They're corrupt leaders. We'll talk about it uh, specifically next week. But we see despite their corrupt leadership, that didn't dissuade Elkanah from pursuing the Lord. What do I mean? Sometimes when we're encountered with a corrupt leader or there's a, there's a leader that falls. I've had many leaders in my life fall. When you have somebody that you know or trusted that's fallen into something, that can sometimes dissuade you from pursuing the Lord. Happened at our church at Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale. But those who are consistently seeking the Lord that are really set out to 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 seek and find God's heart and and meet him and and, and draw near to him, those they're going to seek God regardless of the corrupt leadership that was established. We see hafti and Phinehas, they're corrupt. They do some messed up things specifically again in the next chapter. But that doesn't prevent Elkanah from pursuing the Lord with all his heart. First Samuel chapter one. Verse 4, and whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. So we see Elkanah, he would come yearly and he would provide these sacrifices. He would provide these offerings to the Lord. See Elkanah and his pursuit of God. He was sacrificial. Point number two, seek God sacrificially. Seek God sacrificially. We'll get into the double portions in a second. But we see this sacrificial quality in Elkanah, in his pursuit of God. His pursuit of God cost him something. It cost him something. It cost him time. It cost him effort. It cost him energy. It cost him livestock. It cost him many things. And the same thing goes for us. If we're sold out to seek the Lord, it's going to cost us something. Something. In fact, he doesn't hide that. He makes that very clear. Whoever desires to come after me needs to, to forsake all and be willing to let go everything, be willing to sacrifice everything in their pursuit of me. He says it so many times in so many different ways. Paul says it, in other words, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says this, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you would present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service or your reasonable act of worship. We see the call to every Christian is just that, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean martyrdom. It could for specific people, but across the board, that's not generally the case. It it means that we have to be willing to, to really sacrifice anything and everything that could possibly get in the way of our pursuit of the Lord. See, Elkanah, he was a man of sacrifice. He offered sacrifices. He put time, he put effort, he put energy into his pursuit of God. And the Lord asks the same of us seeking God. There's, there's, there's things that often have to be sacrificed. You guys are doing it here right now. You're sacrificing time just, just being here. So often it's about the little things. It's not always about the big things. When we can sacrifice the little things, we're more likely to sacrifice the bigger things. But the truth of the matter is it is a sacrifice to pursue God. But we all know we always gain more than we sacrifice. And the Lord is faithful to get that across to us. You remember we were talking about it the other Sunday when Peter's like, what, what are we going to gain for forsaking all and following you? Jesus is like, don't worry, Peter, you're going to get a hundredfold of everything that you forsook. Okay, Anything you sacrifice or you think you sacrifice, you're going to get a hundredfold in the kingdom to come. We see Elkanah. He was a man, again, of sacrifice. So he gives portions to Peninnah. But he gives Hannah this double portion. Now this must have been a, a peace offering or a Thanksgiving offering, uh, because sin offerings, you weren't able to, to eat of that. And we won't get into the offerings too much for time's sake, but basically what would happen, they were giving up either peace offerings or Thanksgiving offerings and with the, uh, the stuff that they were allowed to take, certain body parts, depending for on what the offering was, they would have this ceremonial Uh, feast at the tabernacle, but Elkanah would give Hannah double, okay? This likely wasn't done in secret, okay? This is likely out in the open, meaning Peninnah knew that Elkanah's favorite was Hannah, which probably caused even more problems, which we'll see a lot of these problems begin to show up in this text. But we see Elkanah, he had a special place in his heart for Hannah. That's why he gave her that double portion now look what it says in verse 5 but to hannah he would give a double portion for he loved hannah although the Lord had closed her womb. So that was a big deal, as we discussed, right? A man, he wants to pass down his line. He wants to pass down his name. So we see that Elkanah, he loved Hannah, even though like the thing that he probably wanted the most was to have a son through her, he couldn't have. But he still loved her so much, He, he genuinely loved his wife. But we see it wasn't her fault. God had closed her womb. God strategically closed her womb. This wasn't just like God punishing or God forgot about her or God didn't know. No, No, this was part of God's plan all along. What do I mean? God knows if he closes her womb, that's going to bring her to a place of brokenness. He knows if he can bring her to a place of brokenness, then she's going to seek him with her whole heart. And he knows that when she seeks him with her whole heart, she's going to be willing to give him the very son that she's asking for. And God needs a leader. God needs a righteous leader. God needs a young man that's going to be dedicated to him for life. See, God closed the womb strategically just so that she would dedicate Samuel to him and he could raise him up to be a light in the midst of a very dark time period. Though this was hard for Hannah, though this was a a trial, if you will, this was suffering for her, if you will, the very thing that she wanted she couldn't have God was glorified through it, and God used her suffering for his glory. If she would have been able to read what, what Samuel was gonna do and see in the big picture, she would have been like, oh, this is great, yeah, I'll dedicate him right off the bat. But no, God used every little step, including closing her womb to bring her to that place of brokenness that she would be willing to get, dedicate Samuel to her, to God for life. First Samuel chapter 6, 1, verse 6 and her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it was, year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, that she provoked her, therefore she wept and did not eat. See, Peninnah would provoke her, and she would probably say, like, yeah, you might be the favored from... Elkanah, but you're not the favorite from God. Look at all these children that I have and you don't have any children. And whatever she would say to her, it would be hurtful. And we see that Hannah didn't take this lightly. Words are hurtful. She would be so sorrowful, not only that she was provoked, but that she couldn't have a child that she wanted so desperately. It says that she would weep and she wouldn't even eat. Remember, she was given the double portion. And she couldn't eat the double portion. She was given a blessing and she couldn't receive the blessing. Why? Because there was something else she was longing for. She didn't want food. She didn't want these other things. She didn't want material things. She she wanted a son. She wanted something that only God could give her. Now we can all relate to this as well. We've all gone through seasons of our life, most of us, before we came to the Lord where where we recognize that nothing in this world is going to satisfy us. Not all the money, not all the food, not all these blessings. There's something that we're longing for that we can't just find for ourselves, that we can't provide for ourselves. That's exactly what Hannah is experiencing and this experience is going to drive her to the Lord. First Samuel chapter. 1 verse 8. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? See, Elkanah's struggling. Yes, he wants her to have a son, but he's like, aren't I better than ten sons? You got me, and and, and I love you, babe. I love you with my whole heart. I even love you more than Peninnah. Okay, I don't know what he actually said. All we know is what he said right there. But in all sincerity, what Elkanah is trying to do is he's trying to fill a void that he can't fill fulfill. He's trying to provide something that he can't provide. And as sad as it is, we all have to come to the terms of this truth, both husbands and wives. We can't provide for our spouses every single thing that they need. We're never going to be able to do it. We can't be their God. And if we choose to make our spouse our God, they're always going to disappoint it. Why? Because they can only provide so much for us. See, Elkanah, he wants desperately to provide for Hannah because he loves her so much, but all the love in the world isn't going to provide her a son. All the love in the world isn't going to give her the love that she needs because it's not just a son. She's thinking that she's being condemned because God won't give her a son. So she's not just struggling with, uh, I don't have a son. She's struggling with her relationship with the Lord. She's struggling with the fact because that was the culture. That was the custom. If you didn't have a child, if you were barren, that means... You didn't have God's favor. That God was judging you for some reason. So she's struggling with both of those things. And Elkanah can't provide either. He can't provide the son. He can't provide the relationship with the Lord that she's longing for. First Samuel chapter 1, verse 9. So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now, Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. OK, so we see Hannah after this feast that she didn't eat anything. She's just she just wants to seek the Lord. We see Eli. He's sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. We see some comparison and con- Comparison and some contrasting going on here. See, Elkanah is a man that's diligently pursuing God. Eli's a man just sitting there waiting for something to happen. He's literally just sitting there. And we see this character quality of complacency throughout Eli's life here in 1 Samuel. Okay, Not that he's technically doing something wrong by sitting there, but he's not doing something right by sitting there. And we see, again, this 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 laziness, this complacency, and it's going to catch up to him big time in just a few chapters. And it's true for all of us. See, Eli was a complacent leader. He was a lazy leader. There were so many times where he had a chance to stand up for what was right, and he was literally sitting down and not doing anything about it. See, when we choose complacency... There's going to be consequences. And Eli is going to suffer. He's literally going to suffer. He's going to lose his life because of his complacency and not him literally not standing up and doing what was right in the eyes of God. First Samuel chapter 1, verse 10. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. So she can't eat. She's coming to God in complete brokenness. Point number three, seek God brokenly. Seek God brokenly. Brokenly is actually a word, I looked it up. (laughs) Seek God from a place of brokenness when we seek god from a place of desperation a place of brokenness he so often responds we see so many times where people fall at the feet of jesus and jesus doesn't just say eh, get out of the way I'm done with you. I'm not going to do anything about it. No, no. When people fall at the feet of Jesus, so many times he responds to them. One example is in Matthew chapter 8, right after Jesus taught that powerful sermon on the mount, he encounters this leper. And it says in Matthew chapter 8, verse 1, when he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. This man, he comes and literally worships the Lord, falls down before his feet and he asks him, Lord, are you willing? And Jesus says in verse three, then Jesus put his hand on him and touched him saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy was cleansed. See, this leper came, much like Hannah, in a in a place of need, in a place of desperation, in a place of brokenness. And the leper, he didn't question God's ability. He questioned his Willingness. Hannah, she's not questioning God's ability. She knows that God could open her womb if He willed. He's, she's questioning His willingness. So she comes in anguish of heart. She comes in the state of brokenness. And as we're going to see, God will respond to her brokenness, to her desperate pleas. In first Samuel chapter one, verse eleven. Then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, If you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. So we see she starts to make this vow, okay? We got to be very careful with the vows that we make to God. Not that you should never make a vow to God. I'm just telling you, be very careful about the vows that you make with God. Why? Because if we make a vow to God, he expects us to keep it. We see a horrible example of this in Judges chapter 11. This judge, Jephthah, he's uh, put in the position as leader. He wants to take out the Moabites and he makes a, a vow with God, a, a covenant, a commitment. He says, God, if you let me take out this people group, I'll sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my house when I get home. And what happens? God gives him favor. He takes out the mobites. And when he comes home, what walks out of his house? His daughter. His daughter walks out of his house. And later on, sure enough, she's sacrificed. And we can look at it like, that's brutal. Like that is a brutal story. And it certainly is. But one of the main messages there is be careful about the vows that you make to God. God will hold up his end of the bargain, but you got to hold up your end of the bargain. So I don't make... I don't make vows like this to God. God, just help me do this thing that that I'm trying to do or whatever it is, but be very careful with these vows. Now, picking it up, he says <clears throat> verse 11. She says uh <clears throat> O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. So she's saying, God, give me a child and I'll give him back to you. Now we have to remember Samuel's from what tribe? Just... Right, all right, I'm just making sure everybody's still with me. Right, Samuel's a Levite. So technically, uh, uh, Samuel is is already dedicated to the Lord. Uh, we see in Numbers chapter 4, if you want to write it down, verses 2 and 3, that the Levites had to serve the Lord from uh, about ages 30 to, to 50. So there was a truth that Samuel was already going to be serving the Lord, but that's not what she's saying. Not just those 20 years, uh, I'm going to have Samuel serve you his whole entire life. And he makes, uh, she makes an extra covenant, an extra commitment. And look what it says, we understand this commitment a little fuller. At the end of verse 11, and no razor shall come upon his head. She's committing him to be a Nazarite, okay? And we see in Numbers chapter 6 what it means to be a Nazarite. Uh, can't drink wine. Uh, you can't touch anything uh, that's dead. Um, you can't shave your head. Uh, we know Samson, if you remember, uh, in Judges, he was a Nazarite. Usually, the commitment of a Nazarite was a short-term commitment whether it be a year or a few years or whatever. Very rarely did people commit to this for a lifetime. In rare instances, it did happen, like we discussed Samson and also here with Samuel. Samuel was a Nazarite for life. That's what she was committing her son to become. First Samuel chapter 1, verse 12. And it happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. So we see Hannah, she's praying from the heart. Okay, We don't have to pray audibly for God to hear us. Okay, we can pray audibly. That's great. We see that in the Bible, but we don't always have to pray audibly for him to hear us. He knows our hearts. He knows the things that we're going to ask even before we ask him. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray at all, but it is okay to pray from the heart. God hears our hearts and the heart behind our prayers. He hears Hannah's prayers, but Eli, he just sees her lips moving and he thinks that she was drunk Apparently, this is something that would happen during those feasts when people would come uh, to celebrate the feast and provide their sacrifices and offerings. Sometimes people would have a little too much wine. So it's probably something Eli was um, was used to, people coming in and, and praying while they're a little tipsy. But we see another character quality in Eli that's somewhat disturbing. He, he's very undiscerning. He's undiscerning, and we're going to see this magnify itself even more because he's going to actually accuse her of being drunk. Look at First Samuel chapter 1, verse 14. So Eli said to her, how long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. First he makes an assumption, and then he makes an accusation. It's like, Eli, this isn't like good godly leadership that's happening now. He's coming from a place of judgment, and we know we never ever want to falsely accuse anyone called to lead with, with grace and love and not assume things, okay? It, it, he just could have gone about it in a in a totally different way. We see evidence here that he's not he's not very in tune. First Samuel chapter one, verse fifteen. But Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but I've poured out my soul before the Lord. She corrects him and says, No, I'm just broken. I'm just broken. See, Eli thinks she's in no condition to seek the Lord, and God thinks she's in the perfect condition to seek God. Him. why because she's broken and that's what the lord calls us to be right servant on the mouth the be attitudes That's the first thing that jesus says in matthew chapter 5 verse 3 He said blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of god He's talking about those that that state of brokenness In fact, he desires us to be in that state of brokenness in psalm chapter 51 Verses 16 and 17. He says just that God desires a broken and contrite spirit. God desires us to be in that, that state of brokenness. Only when we realize that we're broken will we come to him to get fixed. So he'll bring us to that place of despair. He'll bring us to that place of brokenness so that we can no longer look to ourselves to fix our problems, but we can look to the only one that can really fix our problems. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 16 do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked of him. Okay, so we see Eli, he says, go in peace, God, God's going to grant your petition. Now... God must have told Eli that he was going to do this for Eli to say this with such confidence. Though Eli is complacent, though he's corrupt, God's still using him. Because we see this very thing is going to happen. Now, I don't know for sure if like Eli knew with a shadow of a doubt, but for some reason he felt led to tell her, yes, God is going to be faithful to answer this prayer that you prayed. Somehow, some way, God got the message across to him. 1 Samuel chapter 1. Verse 18, and she said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer set. What happened? She couldn't eat the double portion. She was in a place of brokenness. She was in a place of despair. The only thing that changed, Eli said, God's going to answer your prayer. It was faith. Literally, her faith changed her countenance. Son wasn't born yet, okay? They, they hadn't even conceived yet. It was literally her faith that brought her to a place of joy. Our faith can literally change our countenance. Our faith can literally change our attitude. In fact, joy is a byproduct of faith. She believed and now she's happy. It's the truth for each and every one of us. Sometimes... I'll see, and it's sad to say, I know people go through hard times, but sometimes I see Christians that are way too sorrowful way too often. It's like they're always sad, and it's like there's something wrong there. The fruit of the Spirit is love. The next one's joy. Why is there all this sorrow? Why is there all this sadness? Okay, I get if you're going through a mourning thing, you're going through a grieving thing, but but that can't last forever. If we're truly believing, if we're truly having faith, if we're truly trusting God again, Joy is going to be produced. She's trusting God and joy is coming out of her. Her whole facial expression changes. First Samuel chapter one, verse 19. Then they rose early in the morning in worship before the Lord and returned and came to their house at Ramah and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Okay, so we see they respond in worship. Elkanah, not only does she have faith, not only does her countenance change, but her faith literally led her to seek God on an even deeper level. She came the next day, I want to continue to worship God. God hadn't done anything yet. At least she doesn't know if he's done anything. She just believes God, and that faith literally inspired her to seek God even deeper, see? Our trust in God will lead us to a deeper and deeper pursuit of God. If we're truly trusting Him, if we're truly having faith in Him, the evidence of that is going to be a deeper and deeper pursuit. If we pump the brakes or we're lacking in our pursuit, it's a faith issue. There's something wrong with, with, with our relationship. Maybe we're not trusting God the way that we should be trusting him. But we see evidence in the text when we're trusting him, when we're putting faith in him. That will inspire us to seek him on a deeper level. And that's exactly what she does. First Samuel chapter 1, verse 20. So it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son, and called his name Samuel, saying, because I have asked for him from the Lord. So, <clears throat> we see that Hannah, she prays the prayer, she comes to God in, in desperate brokenness, God responds, she believed God was going to respond, and obviously, obviously as we see, she answers the prayer, he answers the prayer, and he provides for her this son. See, she consistently, she faithfully pursued God, and God came through. Last point. point. number four. Diligent seekers are rewarded. Diligent seekers are rewarded. It's Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6. It says just that, that. That God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He literally rewards those who diligently seek him. Now that might not always be like the reward you're thinking of. It might not be a material thing. More often than not, it's not a material thing. It might be a prayer thing. It might be an answered prayer thing. And as we're seeking God and praying prayers that Jesus would pray, and we're really desiring his will in our life, he he rewards us. It was God's will that Samuel would be born. God probably wanted Samuel more than she did. He had a huge work to do in Samuel, with Samuel, to shape this nation. But the point is, God does reward us when we diligently seek him. But we don't always know when the reward is going to happen. Sometimes the reward might take a while. In fact, we see that in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12, see, she trusted that Eli was telling the truth when he said that God was going to provide this son for her. She believed it, but she still had to wait for this promise to be fulfilled, for this reward to be received. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12. That you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Right? She needed the faith part, but she also needed the patience part. And sometimes we can get the faith part down, but we struggle with the patience part. It's like, man, I've been diligently seeking and, and God's not answering this thing. I've been waiting so long. I'm growing impatient, but it's both. It's faith and patience and those. He said, imitate those. Don't just imitate the faith people imitate their faith and their patience because God is a rewarder in his own timing. And his timing is always perfect. God did this in his own timing for his own purposes. So she's blessed with Samuel. Verse 21. Now the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer the Lord to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. But Hannah did not go up. For she said to her husband, not until the child is weaned, then I will take him and he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. So we see consistency with Elkanah. Once again, he's going up again for the yearly sacrifice. And now... Hannah doesn't go up, but it's for a specific reason. She's not being dishonest. She says, "Not until the child is weaned. In that culture, it was usually two to three years, more likely three, uh, that 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 the child would be weaned after that third year, and then she would be able to dedicate him to the Lord." First Samuel chapter one, verse twenty-three. Just about done. So Elkanah, her husband, said to her, "Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only let the Lord establish His word." Then the woman stayed and nursed her son until she had weaned him. So Elkanah, he gives his wife wisdom. He says, do what seems best to you. Only let the Lord establish his word. He's not like this overbearing dictator. Sometimes I can see this in the church and, 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 I, and I know the heart is typically right, but it's just not the Lord's heart. And sometimes men, husbands, we can take that whole leadership thing way too far. Okay, yes, we're called to be spiritual leaders and we're called to lead our family. That doesn't mean we're called to be dictators. Okay, Jesus wasn't a dictator. Okay, he would draw people, he would persuade them. He was a, a gentleman, he worked with them, he got to the heart of them. See, Elkanah, he's leading his wife, but he's given her the option. He says, hey, do what seems right to you. All I ask is is that that you make sure that you and God are on good terms. I wouldn't want God to you to go back on this vow that you committed to God. So as long as you're following the Lord and you're following his word, make sure you make a good decision. See, spiritual leadership it doesn't always look like telling everybody what to do. Sometimes being a good spiritual leader looks like allowing people to make spiritual decisions. Letting them, "Hey, this is all, I, just please just do what the word says and, 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 and try to do what you think God's telling you to do. But it's not like you have to do this and you have to do that. Now, there is a time and a place where there's firmness and there's hard truth. But Elkanah, there's a sensitivity. Hey, as long as you're following the Lord, as long as you're doing what he says to do, do what seems right to you. And I think there's so much wisdom to gain from that and how he led his wife. First Samuel chapter one, verse 24. Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with three bulls, one ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. So she provides all these sacrifices and these offerings to consecrate Samuel. Okay. Verse 25. Then they slaughtered a bull and brought him to the, to the child, brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh my Lord, As your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed and the Lord has granted me my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore, I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worship the Lord there. So we see Hannah is faithful to fulfill her vow. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. She's a faithful woman. After that third year, second or third year, whatever it was, she brings Samuel to the Lord to dedicate him. And then afterwards, she responds in worship. Her response to God's faithfulness was worship. She wasn't like, woe is me, I have to lose my son. She was like, Wow, God is good. He did what he said he was going to do. Yeah, I'm sure there's sadness. I'm sure there's sorrow. But as we'll discuss next week, she has this profound prayer. She's very grateful. She's not like the, oh man, I made this promise and now I don't want to keep it. No, she's like, God is so cool. He did something supernatural. I can't imagine what he's going to do with this young man. She's very grateful and it leads her to this place, this heart of worship. See, Elkanah and Hannah, we both see through this first chapter that they were faithful worshipers of God. They diligently sought God and God. He rewarded them. He rewarded them by blessing them with a son and not just any son, a son who would be one of the greatest leaders the nation of Israel had ever seen. In fact, this son would be the son that anoints King David, believed to be the greatest king that ever led Israel. See, the Lord calls all of us to be leaders in some capacity. But when we look at leadership, it's not about what we do. It's about whom we pursue. And that's what we see with every godly leader. That's the difference. Either people in First and 2 Samuel, either the leaders don't know God and don't pursue God. And they're corrupt or they know God, they pursue God and they lead righteous lifestyles. That doesn't mean that they don't make mistakes. We know David had his fair share of mistakes, but it's so simple. When you look at the leadership character quality that God's looking for, it's as simple as that that they would seek me that they would seek me with their own heart and whole do the rest that's what he does with this family that's what he's going to do with samuel and that's what he's going to do with each and every godly leader to shape this holy nation let's pray lord thank you once again for this text god and um I pray that we would we would learn uh from from all the different characters uh Elkanah and Hannah and um even the negative ones and Peninnah and uh Eli and Hophni and Phinehas God, so much to teach us. I pray that we would uh just grasp everything you want to pour into us and Lord as as we as we grasp it it would change us from the inside out. Lord we'd we'd be able to keep it simple. God that that we would just seek you with our with our whole hearts. Lord knowing that that's really what you're looking for, and everything else follows that, God. So give us those hearts to seek you diligently. In your name, amen.